you very much. I found Kitty McNaughton's name, along with that of her cousin, Sadie McIntosh, on the memorial gates to the sports ground in my hometown, near the Yuyang Ranges in Victoria. The two nurses were out of alphabetical order, though underneath the names of the men they had gone to serve. They were as modest in memory as I was to discover they had been in life. There is a real sense in which the tragedy and the scope and the consequences of the First World War can only really be grasped at the highest level, that of the total figures of wounded, the overall schemes of battles, the collective experience that would eventually become the one story of our nation's participation in the war. Some kinds of understanding, however, require us to telescope our view down from this collective level to the level of the individual and the meaning they themselves made of their experience. Kit, as I discovered, wrote a diary of her four years at war. In its pages, as in the letters and diaries of all of those inscribed on all of our monuments, lies a different kind of knowledge of our nation's experience of war. In a diary, we reveal the many different faces of ourselves. Kitty, like all of the Australian nurses, was born into a colony, in her case, a colony of Victoria, and she had those loyalties. And this is my, this is my very favourite picture of Kitty. She was 16 years old, it's 1900. It was taken by Willits in Geelong. She was also a nurse in the first generations after Nightingale. And there's Kitty on your left, I think. Um, bottom left in her graduation photograph from the Geelong Infirmary and Benevolent Asylum, as it was then, now Barwon Health. She was also a member of the Roman Catholic minority, a farmer's daughter, an Australian in the first generations after Fed in the first decades after Federation, a member of the British Empire, and one of the first Australian women to travel officially to war. And there she is in her brand new uniform, about to embark. Kitty's images of herself in each of these roles would be expanded, conflicted and challenged as she experienced life in the Great War. Her daily diary, recording her life in process, reveals not only what those experiences were, but also the changes in her ideas about herself and her world in her response to them. To understand Kit's diary, however, I had to develop a kind of double vision. I had to read over her shoulder, watching her experiences through her eyes, but also step away and consider herself her, as she wrote them and also cast an inquiring eye on the diary itself. Because a diary, I was to discover, is not a mirrored reflection of reality. As an early thinker about diaries, Robert Fothergill once said, of all the things that happen in a diarist's day, they actually record very few. They make choices about what to record and just as importantly, about what not to. So a diary can reveal, but it can also conceal. Kit's diary was a travel diary and she received hers as a gift on the eve of her departure on board the Orsova in July 1915. And this is the first page of her diary. And I always like this particular page because it was given to the Kay McNaughton who lived in Little River, um, Victoria, Australia. This is all Kit's writing except for the, the inscription. But this is the Kit that wrote the diary, the one down at the bottom with the much stronger writing, Kay McNaughton, Cabin 37, 
also over, and there's an underline underneath that she's off to war. In 27 days, it'll be 100 years ago since Kit wrote those words. The idea of a diary as a secret place for our innermost thoughts is a mid-20th century phenomenon. Kitty's diary was intended to be shared with her home people. We often think of the people at home and wonder what you're all doing, she wrote, after describing a concert given by the troops on board the first day out of Australian waters. And if you could only see us all doing the grand, you would know that we were enjoying ourselves. The nurses made their choices about what to say and about what not to say within an overlapping set of social rules that governed what topics women should confine themselves to, what a travel diary should contain, who their audience was, and in the eyes of their audience, what the acceptable persona of the good woman and the good nurse was. In Kit's case, there was the added complication that in 1915, the expected role of the good woman and the good nurse was one of sacrifice and quiet waiting on the home front, not active service on the battlefront. In the pages of Kit's diary, as she attended to the subjects that were expected of her, we see her reinventing herself in new roles, for example, as a nurse at war, and also pushing the boundaries of other identities in ways that her audience might accept. All the girls here smoke like fun, she wrote on reaching Egypt. Seems part of their life. In this way, she justified to her home people her own new modern habit, but her nephew did tell me that Little River did a collective faint when she came back from the First World War with her cousin and they were both smoking. She rolled her own cigarettes till she died. The topics Kit devoted herself to offer us new knowledge of and a new perspective on the war. But there's also knowledge to be found about Kit and her world in her silences, if we can identify them and understand them. Some of Kit's silences were shared with the other nurses, and some were not. Some were obvious. Kit never mentioned the conscription referendums in which she was permitted to vote although it was a common enough topic in the letters of others, nurses and soldiers on the Western Front. Other omissions were only revealed by a comparison with different kinds of records of experience in the same units in which Kit served. Kit's diary of her time serving the Gallipoli sick and wounded on the island of Lemnos, 50 miles from the Dardanelles, offers a perfect example of the simultaneous new light a diary can shed and also the veils that it can draw. In Australia, we're used to thinking of mateship between men as a definitive kind of friendship during the First World War. Kit's diary, with social life an acceptable topic, would illuminate the nature and importance of friendship at war beyond this. It would reveal the friendships between the nurses themselves and between nurses and soldiers on the island as vital sources of solace and support for those on active service. And there's a picture of Kit I found in the photograph album of another nurse, Evelyn Davies, at the War Memorial. Kit's on the right, her lifetime friend Ida Mockridge is in the centre, and these are two soldiers um, with which the nurses spent time. They were sought out by the soldiers because they could um, confess their fears to them um, in ways that they couldn't to their families at home. On the other hand, on this island, Kit and her fellow nurses endured conditions so harsh that nurses from other units actually died. They received difficult treatment at the hands of their hospital's all-male staff, who regarded them as out of place, so close to the front. 
and were shocked at the conditions in which they found their patients. In their diaries, though, what the nurses endured is almost completely invisible. In the face of the opposition to their travel to war, the nurses on Lemnos were keen to prove that they were not too soft for active service near the front and were conscious of the much greater suffering of the men that they were there to serve. Both considerations worked to keep them silent. As well, the norms of the time about a woman's place, together with expected qualities of modesty, self-effacement and self-sacrifice, meant that the, their work generally was not expected to be a subject of their diary. Historian Kirsty Harris undertook her own study of First World War nursing because, as she wrote, it's a largely hidden occupation. Together with conventions that restrained Kit from upsetting her readers and the fact that Kit's patients were the sons and brothers, the fiancés and fathers of her audience, this meant that there was very little focus in her diary on the, on the wards or on the wounded. Kit's diary, however, is of particular value because its nature as a travel diary, combined with an accident of fate, meant that for one single part of her service, the door on her work in the wards was suddenly completely opened. After the evacuation of Gallipoli and a brief sojourn back in Egypt, Kit's hospital accompanied the Australian troops to France. In late June 1916, as part of the preparations for the operations on the Somme, Kit was lent to a British hospital closer to the front, the number eight stationery at Boulogne base. Here, wounded prisoners of war were concentrated and treated. It, it reduced the need for guards to be at every hospital, so they're all concentrated at Kit's. And Kit was assigned to their wards. She called them Bosch's Alley, and the men in them, the severely wounded soldiers of the enemy, she would eventually come to call my old Huns. Because of the nature of her patients, wounded Germans and not wounded Australian soldiers, and because of their interest to her audience in much the nature of sightseeing, the taboos that operated in other parts of the diary um, were lifted and in this one place we can see her on centre stage going about her work as a nurse on the second battlefront. Allied soldiers, even when severely wounded, Kit only ever describes generally as being knocked about frightfully. But here we see the terrible nature of the wounds. We're permitted to watch as well as due to the demands of war, Kit steps over professional boundaries and takes on surgical tasks which would have been frowned upon if patients had been allied soldiers or if she was at home. Six days into the battle, she wrote, I have 11 with their legs off and a couple ditto arms and hips and heads galore and the awful smell from the wounds is the limit as this gas gangrene is the most awful thing imaginable. A leg goes in a day. At the end of her description, she added, I extracted a bullet from a German's back today. Of course, the kind of wounds, the work the nurses were doing and the changes in that work demanded by circumstances were not confined to German soldiers and their care, although Kit shields her audience from this reality elsewhere. In a clearing station at Passchendaele a year later, Kit was in charge of the operating theatres and the Australian soldiers engaged in battle nearby arrived on the operating table still in their car key but the door behind Kit went about her work was completely closed and reading the whole section of that diary, if you didn't know, you wouldn't get a clue from that section that Kit was actually a nurse. 
there were no wounded and there were no um, soldiers. At the end of her first volume of her diaries in July 1916, Kit McNaughton wrote, Goodbye to this book. I hope the ones who read it will discover what I mean. One hundred years later, the loss of some shared meanings, the reticence of the nurses on some subjects, and perhaps still undiscovered silences mean that we have not and probably will not ever discover everything that she meant. Kit's diaries and the diaries of others who experienced the war, however, add richness to our understanding of the experience of, this, of Australia's at war, Australians at war and the effect of that experience upon them and upon us. Personal narratives and their careful examination have a vital place in the creation of historical understanding. The different knowledge offered by treasured keepsakes and mementos such as those on exhibition here today and these are Anne Donald's letters kept by the National Library underline the, value, the great value of their preservation. Thank you very much. <laughs>